Okay, all that um, to say this morning we are going to jump into uh, our sermon series that we've been going through for I think about 12 weeks now. I believe this morning is part 12. And we've entitled the, our summer series, The Classics. We've been looking at all the classic stories uh, throughout the Old Testament, like Noah's Ark, the walls of Jericho, the Tower of Babel, etc., etc. And this morning, my goodness, I've been excited about this one. If this sermon series was Led Zeppelin for This Is Our Stairway to Heaven. If this was A Night at the Opera, today is Bohemian Rhapsody. If this was Scorpion, this is God's plan. This morning, we are going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath. Yeah, epic, epic, epic story. And isn't it amazing how God reveals himself in story? Isn't it amazing when you, when you open up the Bible, when you look at the Christian scriptures, you discover a God who isn't merely a list of ideas. He's not merely an ideology or a list of rules that we're meant to follow or memorize. God himself is actually a personal being. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that God would reveal himself in narrative, that we would find him in the story of life, in the, sto- in the story of people, in the story of creation, because God himself, um, I was going to say like us, but it's the exact other way around. We are like God. We've been created as these relational, personal beings, and we've all got these stories that we're living out in, and a part of. And so we find God in stories. And this morning, it's the story of David and Goliath. If you have a Bible, crack it open or turn it on. Um, if you'd like to grab one out of the center aisle here, we always have some, some paperback Bibles for you to access if that helps you. But we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and jump right into this story. Um, if we were to subtitle this story um, of David and Goliath, I'd, I'd probably want to call it something like the making of a champion. Um, we're jumping right into a story that's been unfolding for, for many, many years, centuries even, um, <laughs> Here in 1 Samuel 16, we're around 11th century BC, is about 3,000 years ago. Uh, God has rescued his people out of slavery in the oppressive nation at that time, anyways, of Egypt, and promised them that he was going to use them uh, to bless the world, that he was going to bless his people, Israel, and through them bring restoration redeem all of creation and humanity through this, this people, this family that he's called to himself. Part of that had to do with them traveling to a particular place, uh, displacing other uh, violent, oppressive uh, nations. And it's a, pretty, it's a pretty violent story, to be honest with you. Um, it's not like the world was just standing back as God decided, no, I want, I want to undo all that's broken, dark, and evil in the world. I want to restore the world and bring peace. We find early on in the story that there are enemies. There are people who are happy with the status quo, who want the world to remain as it is, and therefore God's people, they have some, some fights to fight. They have some battles to be fought. That's where we're beginning this morning. We find that there is a battle And in the midst of this battle, we see this young man named David arise and become the champion that God has called him to become. So here we go. Let's read this. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 6. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, typically, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called, let's pause here, what's happening? Um, Samuel, who is a really, really old judge of Israel, he's a leader among the tribes of Israel. Um, 
in that time of this nation, in their story, Israel didn't have a king. They always, well, they did. Um, initially, they didn't have a king. They always saw God as their king. Eventually, they demanded a king because they wanted to be like the other nations. So they enthroned a man named Saul. Saul started out okay, but it turns out he was deeply insecure and ended up making a terrible king. And it's kind of like one of these I told you so moments in the story. What God does then is said, right, I let you guys have your way. This is classic. I let you guys do it your way. I told you it wouldn't work out, and it hasn't. Now let me pick my man. Let me pick the young man who is not levying for power, who's not trying to make a name for himself, who isn't insecure, obsessed with being the man. Let me pick another kind of person. And so he sends Samuel the prophet, or this judge of Israel, to go and anoint, that is, appoint, one of the sons of Jesse who will become the new king of Israel and lead God's people as, as God himself would lead them. So Samuel goes to Jesse. Uh, he's the father of this family, and there's many sons, and he brings up the oldest, whose name's Eliab. He's tall, he has stature, he, he has all of the trimmings of a great, mighty warrior king, but God says, no, not him. I'm looking at the heart. So he goes through all of the sons, and finally at the end, um, Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Okay. In ancient Israel, it wasn't a good thing to be the shepherd. Okay. You were dirty, you were nasty, you were, you were relegated to shepherd duty if you really didn't matter much in life. So Jesse's like, well, I do technically have one more son. He's the youngest. He's the runt. No one likes him, and he's out in the back taking care of the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which is kind of a word we don't use much these days, but it's like he basically had like uh, sort of reddish complexion, red hair. He was kind of like if you picture like one of these little kids who's like cheeks get really red and he's just kind of young and ruddy looking. That's, that's our man, that's David. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So he was a good looking kid. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. This is what he's saying to Samuel. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, Samson, rushed upon David from that day forward. Little man David has just been appointed by the prophet Samuel to be the future king of Israel. This is what we call the promise. It begin, the story begins, and by the way, this is the first time in all of the Old Testament scripture that we find mention of David. This is his, this is his debut. This is uh, arguably the, the greatest, most influential, used by God, king, leader, man in, in all of the history of Israel has just come onto the scene. And it wasn't because he had nominated himself. He didn't, he didn't volunteer. He didn't ask to be the man, God simply said, you. You, yeah, kid that no one else even knows exists. You, the guy whose own father was like, well, technically we have another son, but all right, I'll get him. Yeah, you. I wanna make you a promise. I'm gonna use you. That's right, the runt, the unsuspecting one, the underdog. I want to use you. And so David receives a promise. So I want to make a quick side note on this one. Um, there's maybe like three or four older people in this room. If you kind of look around, we're like mostly kind of young. Um, it's a bad thing in a church when like the 43-year-old pastor is mostly the oldest guy in the room. Okay, that's not... It's not really what we want. Um, generations are a good thing. 
Um, and if you're older than me, if you're like 50 plus and we've ever had a conversation, I've probably said something really awkward like, please come back, we need like older people here. <laughs> like no offense, um, but we need like family, we need generations. Here's what I wanna say. So Samuel was that guy, he was an, he was an old man at this point, properly old. He wasn't gonna go out and slay giants. He wasn't gonna be the one, he wasn't gonna be the next king, but he was the guy who had been walking with God for a long time. He heard God. He had that kind of relationship, the kind of relationship that typically only develops over decades of time. And God says, I want you to go and anoint the young man David. No one else is even bothering to listen to me, but you are. And I want you to go and anoint this guy. Guys, this is something that I've kind of been feeling um, uh, prophetically, as we say, for our church, we need fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, spiritually speaking, in this church to look at some of us youngsters in the eyes and say, let me tell you who God says you are. And those words that you speak to that young man or that young woman in the name of Jesus carry far more weight than I think most of us realize. You need to know that you're not just like that old person who actually has a grown-up job and can give some money to the church, praise the Lord. Uh, but you have the opportunity, the weight, as it were, to speak words that us young people desperately need to hear because we've all heard it said like a gajillion times. We are the fatherless generation and I don't mean that tritely, that is statistically real. And so we've not had, many of us have not had a father figure or a mother figure look us in the eyes and say, let me, let me tell you who God says you are. I believe that. Hold on to it. You're going to need it in about 20 years from now when you're raising your son or your daughter or when the world is trying to redefine you and tell you who it thinks you are. We need you to look us in the eye and tell us. And you might be thinking, well, but I don't know. I'm not I'm no Samuel. I know you're not. <laughs> who is? But you've been walking with God for a while. You hear God and we need you. We need you to speak those words of life. So we start with a promise. Next, um, let's go to the next slide. I'll just keep reading. Fast forward just a little tiny bit. 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. Behold. Um, let, me, uh, let me set this up just a little bit. So he's, he's made the promise. Um, and essentially after that, like nothing really happens. Like we don't know how much time has gone by. We do know that Israel is still fighting with the enemy, which happens to be the Philistines in this, this story. Um, and it's not going well. They've, they've been at it now for several decades and it's not going their way. In fact, we're told elsewhere that during this time, God's enemy forced Israel to hammer all of their swords and, and, and weapons into like farming implements so that they wouldn't rise up and, and overthrow the, the oppressive forces that are ruling the land. And so it's not going well for Israel. King Saul at this point of the story is just, just failing miserably. I mean, it's, it's a sad situation. And David's got this promise, but as far as we know, he's still just, out watching sheep, like nothing's happened with it. And so this is where we pick up. Now, it says, behold, this is one of the young men who was part of King Saul's posse. And Saul, he's, he's been like tormented by, it's really weird, but the Bible refers to it as a harmful spirit from God, which we don't really have time to go into it, but... When you hear something like that, a harmful spirit from God, that's the ancient writer's way of saying, God is sovereign, nothing happens that catches God off guard. Um, so it's not like God is out like assigning evil to people. Um, but God is sovereign. 
And now Saul, his life is falling apart and he's done it to himself and now he's being tormented by a harmful spirit. And one of his men says, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech. This is David he's talking about, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. David became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, that's like a little miniature harp, and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. So, This is good, favor. You might think, awesome, the promise is happening. Um, But essentially, if if you kind of read between the lines, all that's actually happened is David has been been promoted to not assistant regional, but assistant to the regional manager. Okay, (laughs) He's, apparently he's known to be this like man of valor, man of war, prudent speech, man of good presence, et cetera, et cetera. And what's his new job? He's, he's like Saul's personal little musician. That's what he gets to do. When Saul's in a bad mood, he's like, dude, call liar boy. Like, I need, I, need to, I need to be soothed. That's his big position now. It's not exactly the king that he had been anointed to become. He gets, he gets to serve the crazy king who has a really, really I don't know what his problem is, but it's not going well for him, and he needs a musician to soothe him. To make it even worse, if we read a little bit further, and this is not up there, um, David eventually does get a chance to see some of the action. We're told um, in chapter 17, verse, what is it, 17, um, that Jesse, David's son, says, hey, David, I want you to go to the front line where the battle is taking place, and I'd like you to take your brother some bread, oh, and these tin cheeses as well. So essentially what's happened is that David is promoted to like jams for the king and cheese for the bros. Like that's what he gets to do. That's his like road to glory. He gets to carry cheese. Not exactly uh, king stuff. This is what we call the weight. This is the weight. This is where the young David, the one who's been promised that God's gonna use you. God has a plan for your life. He's gonna do incredible things through you and with the gifts that he's given you. It's this awesome promise that Samuel had said, look, this is, this is who God says you are. This is what God thinks about you and this is the plan for your life. Is it happening? Not even close. If anything, it's just like, it's embarrassing. Can you relate? This is the point of the story and I'm so sorry for breaking like hermeneutical rules here, okay? You're never, ever, ever supposed to make allegory into like whatever, okay? This is a a brilliant allegory for life. God calls you. He makes a promise to you. I mean, the New Testament is riddled with promises to us like you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loved you. And you will overwhelmingly conquer, spiritually speaking, through him who loves you, and who's given you everything you need for life and godliness. So this is like amazing promises that Jesus says, if you lose your life and follow me, you will find your life and become the person God created you to be in the first place. And all of these promises, they're true and they're personal. And yet, why is it that most of life feels like a waiting game? Like, I believe the promise, but look at me. I'm carrying cheese for a living. 
I mean, no offense if you like sell cheese. This is the weight. This is the part of the story where faithfulness comes in. David, he's learning to serve um, the vision of another. <laughs> he, this is the, the boss who, who loves you, who, who thinks that you can do no wrong until you do something really right, in which case you become a threat and now hates you because he's insecure. This is that. This is where the man or woman of God learns how to hold on to that promise and remain faithful to the little bit that he's been entrusted with now. And David is learning faithfulness. There's nothing glamorous about it. In fact, again, it would almost seem as if if this is not the promise coming to pass. This is like somehow I've been derailed and I'm I'm going in, in the opposite direction. And yet he is faithful. Faithful all the way to the battle line. So uh, if in case you're wondering, he does take the cheese and the bread to his brothers who are actually in the fight, getting involved, getting to actually be a part of the battle. And uh, this is what happens next. Can we go to the next slide, please? He sees a giant. Actually, he doesn't see the giant. Okay, we know this is a story about a giant, right? Um, and if we just back up a little bit in chapter 17, we're given a, a relatively vivid description of the giant. 17 verse 4, it says, There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's like nine feet something. Super freakishly tall. Big, big man. It's like my, my brother-in-law is, well, not nine feet something, that's like, but he's like almost seven foot. Big, big man. Um, it said that he was wearing a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which we all know is like 120 pounds, because I Googled that. And he had bronze armor in his legs and a javelin uh, br- uh, swung over his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which is super big, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. So do the conversion. He's a big, big man. He is a seasoned warrior, and he is a giant. Apparently for like weeks on end now, he's been coming out every day, morning and night, taunting Israel, taunting the army of God, saying, who do you think you are? Send your best man to battle me. And whoever wins gets to serve, gets to be the master of the other. Apparently this is a common ancient warfare tactic. If there's a stalemate, they say, right, bring out the champions. Goliath has been doing this for weeks now. And we're told that God's family, they're terrified. They're terrified. And then David shows up with the cheese. And say, hey, what's going on, guys? What's, what's the problem? And he starts to ask around, and this is what we're told. Um, 17, verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And you know what David says? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that ancient trash talk there. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is fascinating. Everyone sees Goliath and David doesn't seem to notice him at all. Actually, we're told specifically in verse 23 that when David arrived, he didn't see Goliath, but he heard him taunting the army. Specifically says that. He didn't see him, but he could hear him. Apparently, he wasn't close enough to the front line to see the action, but he could hear the giant shouting. And the people are like, have you seen this guy? He's insane, and he keeps taunting us, and we're scared to death. 
And David's response is, I don't get it. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who thinks that he can defy the armies of the living God? This, if we start with the promise, we work on the faithfulness, enter faith. This is David now actually exercising faith. Jesus taught us that if we were to follow him, uh, if we were to actually live as he lived, obey him and become like him, that we must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. You remember hearing that in the New Testament? He says, walk by faith, not by sight. David hadn't seen anything. He had only heard the rumors. He had only heard what others said about this apparently impossible situation that the army had been facing for some days now. And his response was, I don't care how big he is. And I can't help but imagine in David's mind, he must have been thinking like, gosh, how big is this guy? I mean, he must be a monster. The whole army is afraid of this guy. His response, I don't care how big he is. Who is he to defy our God? Our God. Have you guys all lost your mind? Have you forgotten who's to whom we belong? Have you forgotten how big and faithful and strong and good and merciful and mighty our God is? And if this uncircumcised Philistine has the audacity to defy our God, who, shouldn't someone stand up and say something or do something about it? This is David exercising faith. Not in himself, but in his God. It's epic. This is the making of a champion. Next. Well, it gets good now. Next, we come to the test. Chapter 17, verses uh, 28. Is that up there? Mm. Check out what his brothers say. Here, right, he's just delivered the cheese, right? And he's asking around, like, okay, what, what is the problem here? Let's, let's sort this guy out. Look at what his brothers say. I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Okay, this is his brothers saying, like, I know what you're all about. You're trying to make a name for yourself, aren't you? You're trying to, you're seeing this as your moment to exploit the situation because what, you think you're gonna, you're gonna do something about it? Super supportive. I know your presumption. And then check out what Saul, the king, says himself. You are not able to go against the Philistine for you are but a youth. So David has faith except that no one else around him seems to, to see it. He's not getting like, yeah, you can do it, David. Like, you're the man. Like, we're with you. We're behind you. If you've got the courage, we'll, we'll follow. No one around him can see what he sees, much less even agrees with what he think is, thinks is about to happen. This is the test. Okay, here's the allegory. Here's the, uh, the application for us. So if you ever come to that point in your life where you're like, look, God has made me this promise. I know that I'm destined to become someone great because my king is just like that. Jesus has called me to, to be light in darkness, to be, to be salt in the earth, to make a difference, to stand up for injustice, to face down giants. And if you ever get to that point to where you believe that your God is able to do impossible things through you, not because of you, but, but oftentimes in despite of you because he's just that good and faithful, then you will be tested. You'll be tested, and let me tell you something, the test might very well come from the very people who you think ought to be supporting you, like your brothers. Now, I know you might be thinking like, hmm, so... So you're saying, if I don't get my bosses or my brothers or my mentors or my pastors like thumbs up, I should go rogue, right? Because no one gets me because I'm, I'm a snowflake and we've, you know, whatever. No, 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 let's definitely not do that again. 
David, I, I love this, this guy. He actually goes to the king. He submits himself to the leadership of, of, of Saul. And he says, look, this is, I, I think I can take this guy. No one else sees it, but look, I know my God. I know my God. And so he, he submits himself to the leadership of Saul. Saul, as we've just read, initially says, look, you cannot do this. You're a kid. This guy's a seasoned warrior. He's going to pound you. What are you thinking? And David's like, no, I really think I can do this. Look, I've been, I've been mining sheep now for God only knows how long. I've taken on lions. I've taken on bears. And every time, God has been there to deliver me. I'm pretty sure this guy is no bigger then those bears and lions have been fighting out in the wilderness. Saul ends up saying, okay, fine, fair enough. You're obviously determined. Just, at the very least, just take my armor. And David takes it. Now, most of us would have been like, no, 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 no. Listen, Saul, I got this. Okay, I got this. He doesn't do that. He's like, okay, fine, give me the armor. He tries in the armor. It's obviously like way too big for him. It's kind of clunky. And you can read the narrative yourself, but essentially David's like, look, thank you so much. No disrespect. I appreciate you've been at this for a while, but honestly, like I'm just, this is, this is awkward. Like I can't even move in this stuff. If, if this is gonna work, it's, it's going to work the way I've been practicing it over the last little while. So it says that David takes a staff and he goes to the river and he finds five little rocks, stones, and he puts them in his little shepherd's pouch and he goes to the front line. But you will be tested. If you ever have the faith to face down a giant in your life, rest assured there will come the point where you will have to be able to stand on your own two feet. You will have to have a personal trust in your God beyond what you've simply just heard others say, beyond what your parents may have taught you to believe, beyond what you've seen demonstrated in those around you, God will lead you to a place where you have to learn how to trust him yourself. And God will allow you to be tested in that way because ultimately every one of us needs to be able to stand and know and be confident in who God is for us personally. It really is a very personal sort of relationship that Jesus is calling us into when he asks us to follow him and know him as God. So that's the test. Then comes what I call the talk. Finally, David makes his way to the front line. He's been faithful trusted God, he applied faith, that faith was tested, and now he's actually facing the giant. And this is what happens next. Chapter 17, verses 43, is that up there? There it is. And the Philistine said to David, my dog, you come to me with sticks? I don't know where he gets sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, the Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beast of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host, this is violent, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. Amen. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, but the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. It should be noted that this is not a pro-violence story. If anything, I mean, just it's, it's as if the writer is being very, very intentional to say, look, this is not a pro, I, you know, you read this stuff online, and you're like, oh, I don't teach my kids the story of David and Goliath because it's pro-violence. It's so not that story. The point is that this is not a, hey, I've got a bigger sword than yours. I've got bigger bombs than you. I'm stronger than you are, so I'm going to oppress you and see how you like it for a while. The point is, no, God 
is the one who executes judgment. God is the one who subdues enemies. God is the one who overcomes evil in the world, and he doesn't do it through might. He does it through a boy trusting him. The New Testament elaborates even further and says, don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Love is our weapon as followers of Jesus. We love people to death. Apostle Paul says that we don't wage a, a, an actual warfare, but the, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. They're the spiritual weapons. Just in case anyone's thinking, like, we should totally, like, go kill people. No, it's definitely not what's happening here. This is the talk. Now, on one hand, this is like classic, like, villain monologue situation here. Like, I just watched Superman uh, with my family last Friday, or on Friday. Have you guys seen Superman in a while? It's like one of those movies where, like, in your mind, you're like, oh, that was such an epic movie. We should totally watch that as a family. Then you watch it, you're like, dude, this movie's so lame. Like, I'm sorry if you love it, but the original Superman, it's just like, oh, my goodness. Thank God movies have gotten better. Um, (laughs) The one part that I did like, though, is when Gene Hackman, who plays Lex Luthor, is giving his, like, epic villain monologue, and he's telling Superman exactly what he's about to do, like, giving away secret details of how he's going to, like, destroy everyone. And it's like, ah, you're such an idiot. And I just, I love this about old movies and villains. This is that. Goliath is like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you down and I'm going to feed you to dogs. And, and David's like, oh, yeah? Well, check out what I'm going to do to you. Like, I'm going to take your sword. I, I love how he says, I'm going to chop your head off. And Goliath is probably thinking, kid, you don't even have a sword. And David's probably thinking, yeah, well, not yet. Give me a minute. <laughs> and so they're trash talking. It's the talk. But here's what I want to emphasize, okay, on this, this sort of like journey we've been going, this, this narrative that we've been tracking with, is that when it finally comes down to it, he's now facing his enemy, and his enemy is not just standing there silent. He's got something to say. And what he has to say, ultimately, it's, it's yes, to intimidate, it's to make David look really or feel really small, like he can't do this. But I, I, would, I would want to say something even broader about it. The enemy's talk is to get David to take his eyes off of his deliverer and onto himself. There he is standing there with his staff and his bag of rocks and a sling. He has a sling. And this giant is like, look at yourself. What do you think you're going to do? What do you actually think you're going to do? You don't have a sword. You don't have the experience. You, 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 you. And what the enemy is doing, this is how the enemy lies to us. He says, just look at yourself. Just look at yourself. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're going to do? And so the enemy speaks with the intention of always getting you to look at yourself. And there's so many other layers to this and things we could say. Because this is it. This is when the enemy speaks. He just wants you to stop looking to your deliverer and look at yourself. And it could go one of two ways. Sometimes some of us have like pride problems. I've told this story before, but it's just, I'll never forget it. I was just getting ready to go into full-time ministry and I met with this, uh, this pastor, this woman named Nancy, who was awesome, and she asked me this question at the end of our meeting. She said, question, if the enemy was gonna take you out, she said it just like this, if the enemy was gonna take you out, how would he do it? Like talking about the devil. And I thought about it, I'm like, easy, lust, mm-hmm. for sure. Like just, yeah, some sort of like porn, adultery, like lust. And she, she said, nope, mm-mm. Like, okay. You tell me. She said, I'll tell you. Prophetically, I'll tell you. Pride. And I was like, (laughs) pride. (laughs) Of course, you can't actually say that. You you have to act very humble in that moment. Like, oh, yes, pride. (laughs) Of course, of course. 
pride. Yeah. Because if the enemy can't get you to view yourself as small and incapable, the enemy will try to convince you, you're awesome. Like, you can totally take this giant down. You might be small, but you'll show him. You'll show him because you're, you've really got the goods. Did anyone happen to read Malcolm Gladwell's um, David and Goliath? Um, what was it, two, 2005, I think, a few years ago? His, his latest book. I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Listen to his podcast all the time. Blink, Tipping Point, phenomenal books. I agree with him on like 99.9% of everything I've ever heard him say. He's, he's like a Canadian journalist, right, for the New York Times. Except for this. He did a TED talk on his book, David and Goliath, and his whole angle is actually, when you read the story carefully enough, what you discover is that David did have what it took. And if you really understand like the nuances and the intricacies of, intricacies of what was happening, yeah, David had, or Goliath may have been a giant, but he was made for like up close hand-to-hand combat. And actually David was an expert with the sling. And if you really look at it from this angle, what we find out is that the underdog wasn't actually the underdog. He was a master slinger and he had everything it took to take this giant down. As if to say, well, actually, it wasn't that David was small and weak and inexperienced. He was actually, he actually was the man. He actually was strong enough, which is totally not the point of the story. The whole point, the whole buildup of the narrative is that this is a kid and he's small and he, he, he has no business fighting this giant. Except for the fact that he has a God who has delivered him over and over and over. And he's convinced that if he, could, if he could rescue me when I was facing down a lion, if he could deliver me when I was battling a bear, if he could keep me alive in all of those situations, then who is this uncircumcised Philistine who would dare to defy my God? And he's indignant. I don't care how big he is, how big I've heard he is, My God's bigger. That's the making of a champion. My God is bigger. He refuses to consider the lies of the enemy. He doesn't look at himself like, oh, maybe you're right. What am I doing here? All of a sudden, like you do seem a lot bigger than I had imagined in my mind. Maybe Maybe I shouldn't be fighting you. It was never about him in the first place. It was never about whether he could or couldn't, whether or not he had the armor or didn't. It wasn't a matter. And you notice he had five stones. He does have five rocks. The scriptures specifically say that he goes to the river and he collects five smooth stones. Makes me wonder if perhaps in his mind he was thinking, well, I could miss the first time. Which means maybe he was thinking like, look, I'm not exactly the best slinger So maybe I better get five rocks, just in case. This was not a presumptuous, prideful young man. This was a man who simply had confidence in his God. Which brings us to the climax of the story, the rock. Chapter 17, verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his head. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. I love that little detail. Face plant. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. No sword. No might. Just a young man who trusted his God. That stone could have gone anywhere. But he knew his God. We're going to have the band come up in just a moment. Just give me two seconds. And then we're going to take communion. But I want to close with this thought. Where was the battle really won? 
The harp? Heart. I'm like, mm, no, not the harp. <laughs> yeah. The heart. Yeah, the heart. Chapter 16, verse 12. You go back to the beginning of the story. Samuel was anointing the young man, the runt. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. It began back at the beginning when David had a moment with God, really, where God defined him. Something happened in his heart. An identity began to form. Like he didn't just get that faith like that. He, he didn't simply start fighting lions and bears just like that. He didn't carry cheese for God only knows how many times back and forth to the battle line and somehow magically become David, the, the, the young slinger who knew that God was greater than this giant. Something happened back at the beginning in this young man's heart when God says, you are the one. An identity was formed because I guess he had embraced who God said he was. Begins with, who, who are you? Who are you? If you want to face a giant in your life, it begins with learning who God says you are. As a follower of Jesus, my identity is formed not in my greatness, but in who God is and what he's done for me. When Jesus died for my sins on the cross and invited me to put my faith in him for forgiveness, for redemption, for a new life, for a life that's wholly formed and informed by the reality that I am loved because of who God is and what he's done for me. I am called to do something significant with my life because I follow a king who's constantly doing significant things in and through my life. And so I'm, I'm given an identity in Christ. That is where the battle is won. Can I invite the band up, please? One final thought. Figure out who you are, then start collecting your rocks. And if you want to know where this story really begins, we go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Samuel, the prophet who anointed David, had a mom. Her name was Hannah. Hannah, like so many women in the stories, uh, she couldn't have children. Probably some of your story here today. She couldn't have children. And so she prayed and she said, God, looking for my water. She said, God, Thank you, Hannah. Won't you give me a child? Won't you give me a child? And he hears her. She answers her cry. And Hannah prays this prayer. It's too long to read the whole thing. But about halfway through, she makes this, this, this declaration mid-prayer to God and says... He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. 
the story really began when a woman, a mother, decided to pray for her unborn child who ended up being the part of this much bigger, glorious story of God working out redemption in and through people's lives. If you're a mom here, I want to encourage you. Pray for your children. When I got saved, I called my mama, and she'll listen to this sermon because she's my biggest preacher fan. I called my mama and I said, Mama, I have to tell you something. I gave my life to Jesus this week. I became a Christian, and there was a long pause on the other end of the line, and I could hear her crying. And she said, Simon, you have no idea how long I've been praying to hear those words. Thank you, God. And so oftentimes, the story begins when a mother or a grandmother or a father or an uncle, one of the old ones as we started out with, begins to pray for us young ones. I say, God, let them know that it's not by might, but it's by your spirit that we will become who God has called us to become, that we will see this world change, that we will slay giants, that we will love like Jesus loves. And it begins with God's people in prayer, saying, God, we know who you are. You are the faithful one. You are the one who calls the obscure, the the marginalized, the nobodies to do great things, not because of our greatness, but because of who you are. And so God's people cry out, the mamas pray, and God moves, and giants fall down. Can we stand together? As the band leads us in worship, I want to invite you to take communion. We have stations in the back corner there with gluten-free Back there, Josh and Ryan up front. If you're a Christian and you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to recommit your life and say, today, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you because you are the greater one, because you gave your life and spilt your blood for me, for my sins. And I want to remember that and thank you for that and respond to that today. I would welcome you to take communion now.